Hello and welcome to Jaw Law. I'm your host, Joe McGregor, humble lawyer in Dallas, Texas. Today we have a rather special episode. Not really because of the content, but because this is the second time I am recording this episode. Last week, right before Thanksgiving, so if you're listening to this, it's, it's probably well after this. The lead time is about a week or two. But right before Thanksgiving, I recorded an episode talking about non-solicitation. And after I recorded it, I think it was the very next day, I had another conversation with a client that asked what I thought was a really good question about non-solicitations that I think most of the times we don't really hear it. So I am going to talk about non-solicitation and what it is, and it's going to be a two for one. You're going to get two different topics about non-solicitation. So first things first, what is non-solicitation? Non-solicitation for anybody who has had either an employment agreement or they've sold a practice or bought a practice, you are familiar with this concept of non-solicitation. It is what we call a restrictive covenant. A restrictive covenant is simply saying you person are going to promise to not do something. The restrictive covenant that we're most familiar with is the non-compete where we have a specific radius where we're not going to open up an office or work at an office within that radius. A non-solicitation clause is a restrictive covenant that tells us that we cannot solicit someone. Usually it's one of three things, either a patient or, you know, we're not going to call a patient and tell them to come follow us to the next office. It's an employee. We're not going to take the best employee from our old employer. And it's a referral source. We most commonly see this in the context of specialists. I would say that a non-solicitation clause is fairly standard. It's, it's par for the course in most employment agreements and in almost every practice sale. Most states are going to have rules about non-solicitation because most states have an interest in not allowing gross restrictive covenants, things that really inhibit the marketplace, that we don't want what we call restraints of trade. That's the fancy legal term for it. The most common restraints on the non-solicitation is the scope. That means a non-solicitation, if it said you can't talk to anybody in the next 30 miles, well, no, you, you probably have to restrict it or bring it down, relate it to just the patients that you treated. Time, you can't say this non-solicitation is for 100 years. And depending on the jurisdiction, usually there's a distance. So if I move from Texas to Montana and I have a patient who also moves from Texas to Montana, because that's a common move, I guess, I probably don't have a restriction in Montana for the solicitation of that patient. But just generally speaking, most states require reasonability. That's the thing that really undergirds the restrictions on time and scope and distance. And that's what we're going to work with. Is it reasonable? Well, the question I had was someone who was going to open a practice in a certain area. And without going into too many specifics, this client had a restriction that was limiting the ability to solicit patients in a certain area. And while this person was going to be free and clear of the restrictive covenant, there was some overlap in terms of solicitation. So, which just means that in part of this 
clients, I guess, market area, there was arguably a restriction against solicitation. Now, probably doesn't need to be explained, but just to be safe, obviously, this is going to be very, very fact specific, especially as it relates to the language in everyone's contract. They're going to say different things. But generally speaking, the worry here is what kind of things can I do to get myself in trouble? What counts as solicitation? And I would have to say that the fear was reasonable, both because of the language of this person's contract and honestly, the offices weren't that far away from each other. And it certainly is not out of the realm of possibility that a former patient would make the very short drive to go be treated. And this was a concern. The first thing to understand about solicitation, well, I guess I should be very specific here, about the non-solicitation clause is that the word solicitation is is an active verb. It means you have to do something. You can't accidentally solicit. There's some nuance there that you can quibble with. But for the most part, there has to be a mental state that says, I am definitely going to solicit this person. I'm going to ask this person to come to my new office. So I both know who I'm talking to and they know what I'm asking. Now, the fear in this particular client, this was not the only time that somebody's asked this type of question, but this particular client is worried. Well, what if I send handbills out in the community and one of my former patients receives it? Or what if I have a Facebook group that I use to talk to community members? What if I have a website? There are definitely going to be opportunities for my former patients to see the fact that I am going to be open and taking new patients. And that's where we get to the difference between general solicitation of patients and direct solicitation or extra nuance here, indirect solicitation of former patients. So let's tackle these. Again, direct solicitation, that's something where you are actively calling them. You know you're doing that. The classic example is on your way out, you walk away with a patient list and you start calling those patients and telling them that, hey, I'm going to be open next week. You should come see me instead of where I used to work. That's going to probably not look good for you in a court of law if you do that. And it's, in fact, in violation of your contract. The next level up is indirect solicitation. Now, this is the one that I think trips up a lot of people because they're like, well, what is indirect? Is that me having a website? Nope. That would be general solicitation. Indirect solicitation in most states, and and I cannot stress this enough, in preparation for this episode, did a little scouring on some court cases, and I will tell you not every state is consistent on this matter. But generally speaking, indirect solicitation is actually direct solicitation. It is somebody calling up that patient. It's just not you. So as an example, I go start another office and I hire a consultant that's going to be my startup consultant. I am not the person who calls up these patients, but my consultant takes that list and calls up those patients or my office manager or whoever. So I didn't do it, but I indirectly did because I instructed somebody. I had someone do it. I facilitated the solicitation of those patients. Now, what about general solicitation? That is where you are soliciting clients or patients, but you are not directly and specifically soliciting specific people. So, for instance, if I set up a website, the whole world can see that. Well, in most states, it's not enough that a patient, that a former patient anyway, can know that you are open and available. 
you haven't solicited that person. You're just generally soliciting patients, not soliciting a former patient. Where we get into gray area is when you start becoming more and more specific. The example that I usually give to clients is in this modern age, we're really good about intelligence and being able to focus in on targeting our specific market. And you can have people who print up flyers for dentists and you can tell them, I want to hand out flyers on the north side of the street, not the south side of the street. Well, handing out flyers throughout town, just blanketing the entire zip code, I don't know that any jurisdiction is going to consider that a direct solicitation or an indirect solicitation. What I would be afraid of is if I got that list and I said, hey, these are my 20 or 30 favorite clients or former patients. This is where they live. And you went and said, well, make sure you hand out flyers to everyone on that street, but you are targeting those patients. I still don't know if that violates your non-solicitation, but it's getting closer. And that's how you draw some conclusions here. You're using reasonability because that's what the courts are going to do. Is it reasonable that they tell you to not have a website so that nobody can know that you have opened an office. No, that's not reasonable. But is it reasonable that they can put restrictions on your ability to find the old patients and get them and encourage them to come see you? Yeah, that's probably reasonable. And somewhere in between those two are going to be actions that move you towards one or the other. And you just want to be careful. I will say in conclusion that it is kind of hard to accidentally get yourself in trouble. My experience, my observation here has been that the clients or the potential clients or even in situations where we represent the practice and we have some former employee, all the times where there is genuine issue, it's been because somebody did wrong. And we all know that they did wrong. It's more that somebody didn't think anybody would do anything about it. And that's, you know, a conversation for Sunday school. But legally speaking, it seems to be the case that it is kind of hard to enforce non-solicitations unless you're just blatantly soliciting former patients or referral sources or old employees. So that's not really an encouragement to you to go out and walk the edge and just know that it's difficult and expensive to enforce. It's more of just to put some minds at ease knowing that that it's not that easy to violate. Besides the enforcement part, you're probably fine. If you're asking a lawyer and you think you're probably okay and you're just double checking, probably you're okay anyway. And that's all we have for today. Appreciate everyone who listens and takes the time to reach out. We'll see you next time.